Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. For all you elk hunters out there, Chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. From Meat Eater's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review with Ryan Cal Callahan. Now, here's Cal. The last couple weeks have been busy in the art outside an art gallery desk. More specifically, art found in places we think of as wild. Places defined by their apparent lack of human presence. You may have seen photos of the mysterious metal monolith that bighorn sheep researchers recently stumbled across in the Red Rock Desert of southeast Utah. To my eye, the thing kind of looks like a 10-foot tall piece of chewing gum in semi-shiny foil that someone stood upright or a long-lost sculpture by the minimalist artist Donald Judd. No one knows who put it there or why. The Utah Department of Public Safety wanted to keep the mystery going by not telling anyone exactly where the monolith was for fear that people would get lost in the desert trying to find it. Of course, that didn't work, and people on the internet not only figured where the object was, but went back to review satellite imagery and found that the thing has been there since mid-2016, just standing there all by itself year after year. The Utah Department of Public Safety put out a statement trying to deter future artistes, and it contains this gem. Quote, It is illegal to install structures, including art, on public lands without permission, no matter what planet you're from. Could the monolith just be intergalactic litter? And you might ask, where do we draw the line on what people, or aliens for that matter, can and cannot leave behind on public land? Are carns to mark a trail along a stretch of bare rock so bad? How about prayer flags at a campsite, and the good vibes that might be spread on the wind across the landscape? Or that Coors Yellow Belly Tower you and your buddies built that inevitably turns up in the remote woods just after you wonder to yourself if you are the only human being who has ever set foot in that place? Who's to say that that beer can is not a work of art? 
Anyway, I know what you're thinking. What are the results of the Bighorn Sheep Survey? (laughs) This week, we've got this damn show, Pheasants, Food, and Art. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week, as well as this podcast, is sponsored by Steel Power Equipment. Not only was I using the powerful, sharp, compact steel P40 pruning shears to easily snip through pheasant parts this week, but I used a set of steel suspenders to keep my britches up. I'm a bit of a suspender guy due to my lack of butt and apparent need for my butt to see the sunlight all the time. Uh, You know, suspenders come in handy. I traveled to South Dakota. Yes, South Dakota. To meet with a few folks to talk habitat, pheasants, food, and get old snort some time in the field working on her pheasant skills. Now, trying to make life and work happen while being COVID responsible isn't the same, to say the least. Quarantine time and testing are minor considerations. I work from home most of the time. But on my entire 10 plus hour drive, I did not enter a gas station or grocery store or anything else just pumped gas and consumed gas, I guess, throw in some hand sanitizer, and and that really about covers all my travel. Matt Morlock of Pheasants Forever, if you're not familiar with PF, they are a really fantastic habitat-building nonprofit. Brad Leone of It's Alive and Bon Appetit. Brian Merkel, a butcher from Duluth, were all other folks on this trip, and we all contributed foods from our homes. So there wasn't any real grocery shopping, which sounds good and responsible, but these businesses in rural America depend on hunter dollars. For example, Aberdeen, South Dakota, which is where we're based, where this podcast is being recorded from right now, is one of the self-proclaimed pheasant capitals of the world, and they depend on hunter dollars. Now these numbers are loose, so bear with me. Aberdeen, South Dakota figured that Main Street businesses were bringing in around $19 million per year based solely off of pheasant hunters. As hunter numbers changed in the area, the number went way down. They made a lot less. It hurt businesses and the families associated with those businesses. Pheasant numbers had declined a bit. There was also an increase of land that held pheasants but did not allow any access or it was leased and blocked off. So, a lot of the pheasant hunters started skipping over Aberdeen, South Dakota, or just didn't pheasant hunt at all. In response to this, the city of Aberdeen, with help from Pheasants Forever, formed what is known as the Aberdeen Pheasant Coalition, which uses private dollars collectively to lease private land from farmers and ranchers in the area to provide public access to private ground. All walk-in hunting. In their first year, they opened up over 4,000 acres to pheasant hunters. The program has grown since then, and it is an effective economic stimulant to the town of Aberdeen, South Dakota, and the surrounding area. Provide access to good ground, and the hunters will come. We walked a lot of miles, stomped through a lot of thick cattails, worked hard, but we found birds, some of which we got shots at. It was great late-season pheasant hunting. Lots of pheasants, if you're willing to work, which is what it should be like, in my opinion. Then we went over to Eric Johansson's farm, which is your typical farm ranch situation, but they really embrace the, quote, responsible agriculture model. They do a ton of stuff here, and I'm only scratching the surface, 
but they restore deep-rooted native grasses on their rangeland, which allows them to hold more water. They selectively spray noxious weeds in riparian zones, those famous prairie potholes. Then they leave those potholes alone instead of trying to farm them when they go dry. They keep records to prove that wildlife and agriculture can thrive together, and there are plenty of state and federal programs that will help farmers work this way. There were an unbelievable amount of birds in what Eric and his buddy Corey described as a slow day. The cover on the coalition ground, the public access ground, is cover you would kill for as a pheasant hunter. But this place, Johansson's ground, had cover plus food plus, you know, relatively little hunting pressure, very thought out hunting pressure. And there's an undeniable difference. I'd be lying if I said it wasn't the case. Then, on the third day, we went to a property Pheasants Forever is looking to acquire and put into a conservation easement or possibly something a little bit more. It was very different terrain, rolling hills, lots of walking, less cover, but the cover that was there was really dense, thick cover. And eventually, we found a lot of birds. Not a lot of shooting, but a lot of birds. Which now we can get into what you really want to know, the snort report. (coughs) Old Snorticus ran about half speed the first walk of the first day. A little unsure of our intentions, I think. Then she increased her intensity. We got some shots at birds and she worked even harder. She ran all day and was beat. The next day, when we hit the Johansson farm, we had an overwhelming amount of pheasant scent to deal with. Plus, walking through rows of corn and sorghum, which was brand new to her. Think like little highway lanes. Take some practice for those dogs to work back and forth and cross the lanes versus just running, you know, vertically. She got a little wild, but stood her ground pretty darn well on some competitive retrieves with big male dogs that do this stuff for a living every day. Birds weren't too worse for the wear in those slight tug-of-war situations. Lots of shooting, lots of birds, people, dogs, deer busting out of the corn. It was a wild scene for a seven-month-old puppy. She didn't just follow other dogs around. She hunted by herself. She worked her areas. She did really phenomenally well for such a young dog in a brand spanking new crazy situation. And, you know, there's some pretty fancy shooting out there. I have to say, although skeptical at first, Those Carlson's choke tubes designed around the federal prairie storm bismuth loads are legitimate. feel like we were spanking those roosters. We did have a couple of crippled birds, one of which Snort actually took out of the air as it was attempting to fly, which was very cool to see, but then I think she caught a uh, spur to the face, as those roosters do from time to time. I despise a flogging rooster. And uh, she dropped that bird and it was gone. Couldn't find it. Uh, which is not fun at all. We always like to think of these old wise birds, but the average lifespan of a pheasant is 15 months. They're a short-lived bird, but that doesn't matter. Losing them sucks. I want to eat them, not the coyotes. Then, that third day, when the cattail cover was really thick and the birds were slim, that little girl dog worked so hard, she tore it up, She was in the super thick stuff that she was kind of hesitant in the first day, and it was extremely cool to see. 
She did retrieve a rooster, which I was very happy of because I thought that uh, spur to the face may leave a lasting mark. She did look slightly hesitant, I'll be honest, but she did pick it up and bring him back to me. And then uh, flushed a sharp-tailed grouse immediately after and spanked that grouse and she brought it back to me too. It was really great. And these three different experiences all stacked up together made for an absolutely phenomenal trip. I got to tell you, I'm very happy that this dog has had more tough no bird days than days when it's all birds all the time, like out at the Johansson place. That was an absolutely phenomenal experience. We covered a lot of ground. We did a lot of hiking. Those birds are still late season birds who have been hunted and they're, they're wild but there's just a lot more of them. So increases your opportunity for sure. Incredibly cool. On to ducks and geese, I believe. We'll see what happens with a little snort. Keep you posted for sure. Moving on. Quick hitter from the Alternative Foods Desk. So recently, uh, I read an article on everybody's savior, the lab-grown meat product, soon to be released in supermarkets near you. Now, the idea behind this protein, this lab-grown protein, is that this is going to be the golden goose that frees us all from the global warming causing greenhouse gas emissions associated with commercial meat production. Everybody knows my thoughts on this. We've covered this many times. I feel like anything that furthers the gap between meat and the land is a bad thing. Eventually, folks are going to not know that meat came from the land and therefore not care about the land. And I care a great deal about the land. You may have picked that up from previous episodes, but you guys don't need to hear about that. So I brought in two special guests, Brad Leone, who will introduce himself in a much more appropriate way than I can. And Brian Merkel, who will also introduce himself. Hey guys, I'm Brad Leone from Bon Appetit, and uh, really excited to be here chatting with Ryan Callahan about lab-grown meat. For me, there's a lot of topics that come up off of it. One of them that you know uh, that came to my mind in conversation with Ryan up here, where you know we're up here bird hunting in in South Dakota, uh, which is awesome. And one of the things that came up to my mind when we were chatting about it, amongst many topics, was the idea of any market where it all, all of a sudden there is a product and it becomes very lucrative and there's a monetary incentive to create this product. One of the many ideas that excites me about lab-grown meat is the accountability for it, right? So it's like a lab, there's certain ingredients, they're the best ingredients, it's the best whatever, you name it, making this new product, which is a lab-grown meat. And that, that can be theoretically to me, in my mind, a beautiful thing. But if history has shown us anything, it is in that opportunity, in this new rise of a star, of a new potential society-changing product, becomes a new opportunity for people to make knockoffs, right? So like a great comparison that I, I brought up with that, to me, it helps me understand it, is the legal marijuana category, right? So it's like, I enjoy uh, marijuana, and I enjoy the idea of reputable grower and facility, and knowing that I'm going to get from seed to plant to bud, whatever, an accountable, beautiful, trusted, clean product. And if I can get that in beef, whether it's on a land or grown in a lab, that's something that, that, that interests me. Now, what scares me 
is just like the med- just like the marijuana category or field or department is the idea that a lot of people see that and see that for an opportunity for cheap imitations for knockoff. So, and I have no doubt in my mind, other than the hurdles of it being probably expensive, if there's one thing, you know, people are brilliant at is it's, it's innovation on the fly, especially when there's money involved. So my point to get to it is I'm scared of people coming out with dirty lab meats where it's grown in a subpar laboratory with subpar scientists with subpar chemical components. And you're going to get what in a package looks just like what we all want from this new thing, but we're getting a flooded market with something that is potentially dangerous and not what this vision is all about. And just like anything, that is something that I think hopefully that doesn't happen, but being a consumer and being a a citizen and a person, I think that of the world, it it is our duty to also call that out and keep an eye on it. So hopefully lab grown meat can become a nice addition to take a little bit of pressure off of ranchers and traditional beef methods. And to Callahan's point, you know, I don't think it is a race at all. You know, I, I think there's a beauty in the middle. Let's, you know, let's, let's take some pressure off it. Let's get rid of some of the old systems that are in place around beef that are ugly and use this tool to help alleviate and, and, and release some of that pressure. But, um, like anything, I'm excited about it, and um, I see a lot of positive potential in it. But with that comes a lot of responsibility and, and trust. So hopefully, uh, hopefully we do the right thing. Hi, uh, my name is Brian Merkel. I'm a butcher up in Duluth, Minnesota. I work uh, for a business called Weicker Acres, and we raise heritage breed pigs and 100% grass-fed, grass-finished beef and we have a business where we are the farmers, the butchers, and the chefs and like to uh, deliver boxes with all of these delicious items direct to people's homes, as well as uh, some regional wholesale business. And I've followed the lab-grown meat now for a while. And to me, it's very concerning because I believe that there is a lot of momentum building uh, and consumer culture where people are willing to pay more for meat and are very environmentally conscious with the way that they're shopping for food. And what scares me is that people are going to stop supporting small farms and start buying lab-grown meat from some big corporation. And if lab-grown meat was just cutting into the segment of factory industrial farmed meat, that to me would be a good thing. But, you know, my goal is to continue growing business uh, that's supporting small farms that are farming sustainably. To continue with that, I think that there's a lot of flavors of the week as far as environmental sustainability-focused food items go. And lab-grown meat, to me, it's posing as solving this problem, but really it's just another way for people to make a lot of money in the grocery store. And that scares me. I guess I'm also curious because... Okay, how how successful is lab-grown meat going to become? And is it capable of completely wiping out like industrial beef production and opening up all of that land and resources for other use? And maybe if that's the case, then small sustainable farms that are are working with environmentally stable practices or, you know, a lot of these cases actually like a carbon-negative operation – does that give them 
more room where they're the like only real meat that's available. I guess that seems like kind of a dream, but I mean, convince me that that's a possibility and maybe I'll buy some stock in this tube meat stuff. I don't know. We got a meat producer and meat educator having uh, some questions and some thoughts and, you know, then just me, somebody who likes to eat and truthfully likes to acquire meat. The interesting point that both of these characters brought up is what is this actually going to replace? What is lab-grown meat actually going to replace? And if it does replace something, what happens to the void that it creates? Again, to tie this back to the land, in my strong opinion, that if folks like to eat, they know that that food that they're eating has come from the land and therefore they should support, protect, and preserve land. If that goes away, what happens to that land? If that's no longer land that is in food production, does it then go into a bunch of little cookie cutter type home productions? Because I'm not for that. We need more pollinators, more ungulates. Even if you don't eat them, they're fun to look at. We're going to chalk this up on the uh, opinion desk at Cal's Week in Review. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. 
Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Moving on to the damn desk. There's been some good news coming out of the Klamath River Basin in California and Oregon, but when it comes to water in the American West, all news is complicated news. First, let's get to the good. All the groups who need to agree on the terms of removing four dams across the Klamath River have finally done so. This would be the biggest dam removal project in American history, and removing these dams is a huge win. They were built between 1912 and 1964 to generate electricity and to help control flooding, both of which are good things. Unfortunately, the dams have also caused huge problems, including almost completely blocking salmon and other fish from swimming upriver to spawn. Even when the fish can manage to get up and down the river, they often get packed together in big groups behind the dams, which allows parasites to spread easily and have caused massive die-offs. That's bad news for the fish, bad news for us anglers, bad news for all the other organisms that depend on those fish making their way inland, and bad news for the Native American tribes whose way of life revolves in large part around this migration. And in recent decades, the benefits of these particular dams have been shrinking. They're getting old, they don't produce as much power as they used to, and they're expensive to maintain. So you might ask... If the problems are so clear and the benefits so few, shouldn't it be easy to get rid of them? Sure, growing a boat loaded with TNT to the base of each of these dams and letting her rip would be simple, probably cost-effective, and you could sell tickets for the show. To blow it up! Boom! Boom! I'd probably be first in line. But removing them responsibly is slow and extremely expensive, and deciding who pays for that is a major sticking point. And if you built a beautiful house right on the water above one of these dams, once the dams go away, your waterfront property would not be so waterfront property. All this has meant that the fight around removing these dams has lasted for more than 20 years. But now, the states of California and Oregon, and the owner of the dams, Pacific Corp, the Native American tribes in the area, the nonprofit entity created to oversee the removal, and the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, have all signed an agreement greenlighting the project. Demolition could begin by 2022. Similar dam removals have been happening all across the country in recent years, and fish recovery has been observed with many of them almost immediately. That's the good news. But still, not everyone is happy. Imagine that. Even though the four dams in question don't provide agricultural irrigation, 
Farmers have been watching this agreement with concern. In recent decisions about when and where to release water from other dams in the Klamath Basin, the benefits for fish populations have been put ahead of the needs of farmers, and they've been caught without water when they've needed it most. If fish recovery is so high on the list of priorities, will people want to take down the other dams in the area that create a consistent water supply for agriculture? Just as we all value eating fish, we can't forget the farms that gave us so many other things to eat. And this is just scratching the surface of the complexity and conflict of managing water all over the West. It's no mistake that one of the best movies ever made, Chinatown, is about water rights in California. People kill each other over this stuff. As with, well, basically everything in life, there is no perfectly good or perfectly bad. Hydroelectric dams produce clean electricity. If we're ever going to generate all the energy we need without runaway climate change, we're going to be faced with tough decisions. Consider nuclear power. It's dependable, carbon-free, doesn't depend on foreign countries to supply or run, and disposal of the waste is getting better and better. But when things go wrong, they go very wrong, as the people of Russia and Japan can tell you. And don't forget Three Mile Island. And if you think an aging dam is expensive to take down, you should see the cost of demolishing an out-of-date nuclear power plant. But what are the alternatives? So, in the here and now, let's cheer the removal of these four dams along the Klamath. It's going to be great for fish and for people. It's going to supply some jobs. But we're never going to find a silver bullet for these kinds of problems. As we keep going with balancing conservation and the needs of people, we have to keep our wits about us and our pro-nuance, anti-BS detectors turned all the way up. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. If you don't give a damn about that one, here's the next. And it's a hot tamale from the Southwest, courtesy of the National Park Service. Brown trout hunters, sharpen your hooks. Bounties on browns from Lee's Ferry through Grand Canyon National Park are being set in place and open for the taking. You know, bounties on brown trout, because they're non-native. Let's say you're taking the whole clan cross-country on the Great American Road Trip, Clark. Well, even the last true family man knows that while getting there is half the fun, it's expensive. Which is why you should add a little angling to the family itinerary. The National Park Service is paying $25 per brown trout head on any brown trout over six inches. And here's where we get to play the popular game of So You Want to Be a Conservationist, Do Ya? And what exactly does that mean in this situation? Well, it's as murky as the Colorado. If you want to start from the beginning, according to the National Park Service, this desert river held no trout of any kind. Suckers, pike minnow, carp, chubs were the native inhabitants. From its headwaters in the mountains of Colorado and Wyoming, the river drops more than two miles on a 1,700-mile journey to the Gulf of California. This is from the National Park Service website. The water becomes thick with sediment as it passes through the red rock canyons of the Colorado Plateau, and seasonal flow varies greatly. Before dams were built, flows ranged from a few thousand cubic feet per second to nearly 400,000 cubic feet per second. That's a big fluctuation. Historically, only 14 species of fish inhabited the upper Colorado River Basin, but 
Over 40 non-native species have been added since the late 1800s. The native fish species in Canyonlands are primarily carp, minnows, and suckers, and many are not found anywhere else. These include the Colorado pike minnow, razorback and flannel mouth sucker, as well as the humpback and bony-tailed chub. One study at the confluence in Canyonlands found 95% of the fish found were non-native. Carp and channel catfish are the most commonly seen. The invasive carp are native to Asia and were hailed as the greatest food fish ever by the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries at the time. Catfish are known to eat the young of several native species and have played a significant role in the decline of native fish populations. In the past few decades, the Colorado pike minnow, razorback sucker, humpback, and bony-tailed chub have all been listed as endangered species. Which, if this doesn't sound exciting to you, let's just talk about this Colorado pike minnow, aka the Colorado salmon, for a minute. Prior to the dams, this was the kingfish in the river. Pike minnow everywhere are voracious eaters and, in my opinion, make darned fine ceviche. If you are a sport fisher person, one who likes a good fight, the pike minnow will put a serious bend in a seven-weight fly rod and smash streamers when they are on their spawning beds in the spring. If you have ever tied into a sizable pike minnow, you know what I'm talking about. Now, imagine you tie into one that is six feet long and over 100 pounds. Not a fish I want to tangle with on the fly. Again, prior to the damming of the Colorado, one of the means of take, the methods for catching this fish, the Colorado pike minnow, during their annual spawning run, which could have been as long as 200 miles through the famous Colorado whitewater, was attaching a baited hook to a rope, the other end of the rope to the pickup truck, and when that pike minnow latched on, you drove the truck away from the river. Sounds like an exciting and unique technique, right? Something uh, out of that show River Monsters. But instead of traveling like all the way to the Amazon and fighting bugs and malaria, you could have gone to the Arizona desert and just packed sunscreen. We traded this fish, which is currently on the endangered species list, for a rainbow trout. Which, as we've covered many times here on the Weekend Review, you can literally go anywhere on the planet and find a rainbow trout fillet to consume anywhere inhabited by people on the planet you can find a rainbow trout to fish for in some fashion. Minus, you know, Antarctica. The Colorado was a wild, disrespectful river that didn't allow people to irrigate or habitate next to her easily. So we dammed it over and over again. Hundreds of dams on the tributaries and 15 on her main stem. And yeah, I said her, we apply the feminine to water often. Don't you know? Anyway, point is, how do we justify endangering multiple species, putting a bounty that one could argue is arbitrary on a brown trout only over six inches to enhance a fishery that shouldn't exist for a species benefit that is the trout equivalent of Eddie's white bread? Well, because we wanted to. They're fun. Anglers demand them because they're catchable. And we anglers have proven that's what we want, I guess. Moving on to the anthropology desk, and this one from a rock art site that researchers have known about for years, the Pinwheel Cave in Southern California 
which gets its name from an ancient spiral design drawn in red ochre on the cave ceiling. After further exploration in the cave, a team of archaeologists recently found 400-year-old bundles of flowers from the native datura plant packed into crevices in the rock. Datura is known as an extremely strong hallucinogen, and tooth marks were found under a microscope on these particular bundles, providing very strong evidence for the idea that the native Chumash people used the cave for spiritual practice involving Datura-fueled visions. The find of these plant bundles is even more interesting because the spiral structure of the Datura flower almost precisely matches the design painted on the cave itself leading archaeologists to theorize that the painting not only depicts the hallucinogenic plant, but also that the spiral may resemble the visual experience of a person under the influence of the plant. The archaeological finds in the rest of the cave make this vision questing seem, if anything, less mysterious. Evidence of cooking and habitation. It seems that the visions experienced in the cave weren't removed or hidden from the rest of life but rather an integrated part of society. Interesting how history comes around, isn't it? Hallucinogens are now, of course, starting to pop up on state initiatives and open for voting. Colorado, I'm looking at you in a kind of slightly spiralized way. Rocky Mountain High. Moving on down to the Colombian Amazon rainforest where last year, archaeologists uncovered what may be one of those most important ancient art sites in the world, tens of thousands of elaborate paintings, so many that the site has been nicknamed the Sistine Chapel of the Ancients. The find was just made public in the last few weeks. The paintings were made at least 12,500 years ago. The reason we know this isn't because of carbon dating, all of these paintings were also made from red ochre, a mineral that contains no carbon, which, you know, makes it hard to carbon date. But we still know when the paintings were made because they depict animals that are now extinct. We know roughly when those animals went extinct, and so we know that these paintings must have been made before then. Some of the creatures on these walls, mastodons, paleolamas, type of ancient camel, giant sloths, just don't exist anymore. These particular animals don't just tell us how old the paintings are, they also tell us how the environment in the Amazon region has changed over time. Neither a mastodon, nor a paleolama, nor many of the kinds of horses shown in the art could have lived in a jungle. And so scientists are theorizing that, at the time this art was made, the surrounding country may have been grasslands. How wild is that? Not that only 12,000 years ago, the Amazon could have looked like the American Great Plains. Some of the paintings are so high above the ground that they can only be studied with a drone camera, and certain images seem to depict wooden scaffolds that the artist may have used to get up so high, just like Michelangelo on his back painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. So these prehistoric people may have climbed hundreds of feet in the air to make their marks. They just happened to beat old Michelangelo to the punch by about 11,500 years. Don't feel bad, Mike. I'm a slow guy, too. Buddy, it's nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. One last update. As of November 27th, that Utah monolith was broken down by an unidentified group of men. Just as mysteriously as it came, 
it disappeared, and not a moment too soon. Dozens of people have already gone to visit the monolith, disturbing the fragile surrounding landscape. I, for one, salute the folks that packed that sucker out of there. Pack it in, pack it out, should be everyone's mantra in these wild places. Now let's start working on all those backwoods beer can pieces of art. That's all I've got for you this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're loving what you're hearing on the Week in Review, please tell a friend. And, more importantly, tell me what's going on in your neck of the woods by writing in to A-S-K-C-A-L, that's AskCal, at TheMeatEater.com. I'll talk to you next week. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more.